brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. This is episode 469. I am Dennis Jones. This man is Jack Murphy. And we are joined by your daughter in studio today Once as again. well. So, hello all. It's the end of school. That's why Alice is here. So, Summer is here. Which, as a parent, I'm sure is um, exciting because obviously you get to see your daughter more, but same time as a parent how do you like what's on what's on tap this summer we got a uh, summer camp okay she's I've... gonna she's in like one of these uh summer camps where she's gonna do some coding and stuff uh but that's only for like a week and actually she's gonna be in italy most of the summer <laughs> got it made in the shade yeah yeah i think her mom's taking her somewhere else too so oh we'll mister mystery spot yeah good for her um, but obviously, we're always happy to have her in studio. Um, we have Joe Goldberg on today. We didn't... That was the first we revealed his name. We didn't do it... Uh, we've been doing the long tease, the slow play. <laughs> uh, Joe Goldberg worked in the CIA for eight years. Um, Going to be... At the, all the guests have incredible stories to tell. Joe, I was telling you off air, he's through email... And I hope it translates via phone, which I, I think very uh, very comedic. He's got a he's got a, a witty sense of humor to him. He's I've enjoyed emailing him, and I'm sure speaking with him, he's going to be a delight. He was recommended uh, to us by a good friend of mine uh, who's also been a guest on this show twice. I think JT Patton mm-hmm. is his pen name. Um, so yeah, he came to me through a, a good friend. So we're looking forward to having Joe on. Uh, you will hear that shortly. Um, we didn't. We usually discuss topics beforehand if there's anything we want to hit on, and today we didn't really have anything. So I went through the SoftRep Radio email and was just clicking around looking for some stuff, um, if there was any particular emails that jumped out at me. And there was one that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, obviously, it was directed at you because I know nothing about the military. Um <clears throat> It was uh, from a listener, Scott. I don't do last names. We'll give him a we'll give him a pass there. He said, "This he sent Scott. You sent a lengthy email, so I cut it in half. So don't think that I ignored it. I just wanted to get the uh, the pertinent stuff out." He said, "Soft rep was wondering if Jack ever considered doing a deep dive into why many of the issues in the special forces community tend to come from two or three specific units and doesn't really reflect across the entire." special forces community in general. That's the beginning. It keeps going. The units with the majority of the issues are traditionally the SEALs, uh, Delta Force, and more recently, to some degree, MARSOC. We don't see the CAG 
Ranger Regiment or AFSOC members committing these alleged less than honorable choices compared to the first three, or at least not on this large of scale. Commonly, I hear that the reason for these poor, quote, decisions were that we've been at war for 18 years nonstop, but the latter three units have seen just as much, if not more, combat than the three units who seem to be in hot water. It doesn't really add up to me. I'm not saying that everybody from the latter three units are perfect or angels with no negative conduct, but it's very limited to, if any, at all. As an Army veteran myself who served outside of Big Army and who also served as a military contractor, I have a decent amount of experience with guys from many of these units, and in my experience, the behavior and culture of these units overly vary. Why do you think that is? Lots to unpack there. Yeah, so. yeah for sure. I, I think... Let me just look at yeah, it real yeah, quick free. just to see. I, I just want to see exactly what he was talking about. Uh, okay. The units with the majority of the issues being SEALs, Special Forces Group, and to some degree, MARSOC. So I think that there's a couple of different things happening. Um, there's reality and there's perception, and they feed into one another. Okay. Um, the SEALs have been like loud and proud just in like everybody's face uh, for a, a while now, especially since the bin Laden raid. And th- part of that is their own fault. And part of it is just the, the it, it, public perception. And it, 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 see, it feeds into another. It, it, they feed into one another because the SEALs did some things very specifically to try to raise their profile. Um, they did things like that movie Act of Valor. Mm-hmm. Um, they have really like tried to feed the media machine in a lot of ways um, to help with recruitment. Um, those things even end up affecting things like congressional funding and stuff like that. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Because if the if the if Congress doesn't know what you do and doesn't support what you do, I mean, eventually they're going to look at like, wow, this unit is super expensive to maintain. Why do we have it? Yeah, like, what are and, you guys doing? You know, this is something the Marine Corps has, like, they fought for their existence long and hard, and they have to, like, basically wine and dine and romance these congressmen. Um, you know, I, I don't think things are quite so bad now, but it used to be like that, that they would have to really fight for their existence. Um, so they would, you know, have to, you know, like I said, romance um, some of the policymakers and the legislators out there. I, I think the SEALs engaged in some of that also. Um and then on the other, the flip side of it is you have all of these guys who get out of naval special warfare, and they are able to cash in on this reputation that has been built. Mm-hmm. So it kind of snowballs from there, um, and, and it it starts with um, very reasonable, in my opinion, kind of like, and I say this with my own bias because I wrote a memoir myself, but it starts with like, you know. Uh, let's talk, let's take like uh, Remy Adele, uh, who we had on the show, write a memoir. This is my experience, my life in and out of the Navy. And it starts um, in a very tasteful way that there's really nothing wrong with that, in, in my opinion. But then it turns into like a Navy SEALs guide to gardening. <laughs> and it's like, wow, this has like gotten, comp- gotten kind of nuts. Um, and, and it just kind of snowballs from there. And it's like, it's just Navy SEAL this, Navy SEAL that. Buy the Navy SEAL flashlight. Get the Navy SEAL t-shirt. Um, it, it, it even became, like, you can look at these other, like, almost like cultural figures like Kristen Beck, who is a, a Navy SEAL who, uh, who, who became, well, I guess she always was, but I, I, I'm struggling to use the right terminology. But she's 
transgender and she came out as transgender after her military service. So then you have the, the transgender Navy SEAL and there's even a book about her called Warrior Princess. I mean, it, it, it's just like, uh, and I'm not saying she's wrong for being transgender, for talking about that, but the Navy SEAL um, machine, right. if you will, media machine just builds and builds and builds. And I think, uh, again, it's a cycle and it feeds back onto itself and you have people buying into their own legend. Yeah, I could certainly believe that. And, and so you arrive at the point we're at now, and it's just like a perpetual joke where it's like, oh, a Navy SEAL, hair gel and book deals. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it, it's a, it becomes a joke, and I think it, it ultimately it starts to reflect back on the actual active duty Navy SEALs. And the the sad thing about that is that there are a lot of active duty Navy SEALs, and I've met them over the years, who are totally good guys, like head down, doing their job. For sure. Disciplined individuals. They are not in- interested in like having Instagram accounts talking about how badass they are. Uh, just good dudes doing their job and serving their country. And I often think about that because for those guys, this has got to be like just such an embarrassment. You know, and, and when you go and you tell people you're a Navy SEAL, I wonder if people have a, a bad impression in their yeah, mind. Yeah, like what's the, what's the first reaction right. to hearing that? And then all this other stuff with the discipline issues, you know, the murders, war crimes, alleged. <laughs> good, good cover. Dr- drug use, all this other stuff starts. Again, it just like snowballs on top of each other. And I, I feel like it, it's almost like the SEALs are like, the new too big to fail, you know, like this thing is just such an institution um, that like no manner, any manner of ridiculousness is accepted. Um, but he also mentioned uh, the special forces groups and MARSOC. We haven't heard a whole lot from MARSOC. I mean, they they gotten um, the two MARSOC Raiders and Molly. Um, one of them got in, or two of them are in trouble. Um, but I don't, I don't feel like we've heard a whole lot from MARSOC. Uh, the special forces groups, ah, yeah. Um, especially for some reason, seventh group seems to be getting into trouble a lot. Um, but mostly it's been on the seals. And I think a lot of it is just the, the media fanfare and publicity, uh, the whole aftermath of the bin Laden raid. Oh yeah. I mean, that blew back on them pretty hard, I think. Um, so I think it's a combination of things. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, yeah, SEALs getting out after service and trying to build careers for themselves as former Navy SEALs. Um, and even I feel like a lot of times I'm like, man, can I like turn in my veteran card and just like stop being a veteran? Because it's like, no, you cannot. This is like, this is kind of ridiculous, you know, uh, between the, between the vet bros and the woke vets, it's like, man, this is exhausting. Like, I I just want to like report news and, and write, you know, history and interview other guys. Like, I don't really care about all this weird stuff that goes on, but I'm also a part of it. Right. And I have to, yeah. I have to acknowledge that, that when it comes to the commercialization of special, uh, special operations forces, I've kind of been right there at the middle of it, right there in the middle of it. Um, because, you know, we founded this website in 2012. We were really the first on the scene. Mm-hmm. This was before every former guy, had an Instagram account posting right, their right, deployment right. pictures, right? When when we first started, I was one of, 
I mean, when I first, first started, I was the only ranger of my generation talking about stuff. Um, and one of two or three SF guys. Now it's, everyone's in that. Everyone's right. doing it. So, um, so there, I'm, I'm right there at the heart of it. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean to imply that like I'm better than the guy who has the Navy SEAL pull-up bar or something like that. I mean, you know, teach their own. But I think we can all acknowledge that it has also reached a, a point of ridiculousness. Um, but on the flip side of that, these other units, uh, Delta, Ranger Regiment, AFSOC, I mean, they all have their problems. Um, we've all had problems. None of these units are perfect. I think maybe the difference in the units that I just mentioned is that there's a bit more accountability and that people who step out of line get fired. Okay. I think that's one of the things that kind of keeps things from spinning out of control. Um, and again, it's also the, the, the publicity machine is like Delta force as a unit has not sought publicity at yeah, all. Like the Ranger regiment has had some, they, they do some publicity, some public engagement, which I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Um, because again, you want people to know that you exist and you want to get young people to come and, you know, apply. Mm -hmm. Um, but it just hasn't been to that level. You know, you haven't seen the Rangers guide to gardening quite yet. No. And like, as I mean, obviously, um, as a civilian, even growing up, like I feel like my friends and I, like everybody knew what in like Navy SEALs and you might not have heard of like MARSOC or, or these other units and you're just, they've done a good job of self-promoting the SEALs have. And I, yeah, th yeah. I, and I think, as you said, a lot of that buys in where it's like, you know, the SEALs, the elite of the elite, like the, being a SEAL isn't easy, obviously. So you get these guys, and especially from, you know, our generation where you grew up and you know that Navy SEALs are like these, it's incredibly tough. So, yeah. you know, we're badasses, and then you're almost buying in beforehand. Right. So maybe, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of that too. And then he also mentions that, you know, is part of the issue that poor decisions are being made because, you know, we've been at war for 18 years and, and these units have kind of frayed, the culture is broken down. I, I think there are cultural issues. And if you're a former SEAL out there, feel free to, to write in and weigh in on, on what I'm about to say. Um, I'm just going to give an, an observation, and others can weigh in on and uh, weigh, weigh in on it as they like. I think that in the army, it comes out of something of an infantry tradition to be a ranger, to be a green beret, to be a, a delta operator, um, and it's much. It's all you function within a platoon, within a squad. Mm -hmm. Uh, within a team and it is seen as a team effort and no one is really interested in, you know, the individual guy. It's like, okay, you're a good dude. Great. But you know, you're one guy on the team. You spoke on the wheel. I think with the seals, it's a much more like individualistic thing and they see themselves more as individuals. Um, and it comes, I think part of that culture is driven by the army being an infantry driven, culture the seals are coming out of the navy where they are really the only ground combat element in the entire branch of service so they have a very special status in the navy if you're a ranger you're airborne infantry okay cool but we have a whole division the 82nd airborne division they're also airborne infantry right. like so it's not 
quite as seen as like you're not quite as special as maybe you'd like to think you are. Um, so I think yeah, in the seals it's a, a little bit more individualistic, and I think that plays into it. Um, I also think that because of that, in the seals, it is encouraged that it, it, it's encouraged to have more of an entrepreneurial spirit. And like, if you go out there and sell the Navy SEAL pull-up bar, I think those guys like high-five each other, and like it's it's really cool. And and again, that's okay in of itself. I, I think they're they're much more supportive of that. Like, yeah, go crush it in business. Go be an entrepreneur. Go do this and that. When you're a Ranger or you're a Green Beret, and I, I've talked about this in the past, if you talk about like getting out of the military and going to be a businessman or going to be an entrepreneur or start a company. Your own chain of command looks at back at you and says, you're a fucking piece of shit. You will <laughs> never succeed on the outside. You will never be anything after you leave this unit. So the culture is very different. Uh, I, I know I've said this in the past. When I was in special forces and I, I told the guys, I was like, no, nah, I'm not reenlisting. And one of the dudes told me, he's like, you know what NCO stands for, right? And I was like, what are you? Because NCO is non-commissioned officer, mm -hmm. a sergeant like I was. And it's like, it stands for no chance on the outside. Thanks for the support, buddy. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I think there are cultural issues um, that, at play there. And, you know, if you're a former SEAL, I mean, feel free to write in and, oh, and tell, me, tell me if you think I'm wrong. Tell me what you think about what I just said. And, uh, and, and you know, please, please don't just like, I'm not going to read a rant on air, but if say your piece, you know, articulate your points, and I'll be happy to read that on air. Um, and we can discuss it because maybe I am completely off base there. I was never a Navy SEAL, so I can't tell you firsthand right. what their culture is. I can just tell you based on some observations I've made over the years. So I think all of those things play into it. And I think the SEALs, uh, the active duty SEAL teams are in the process of trying to clamp down on it and like reverse course because now they kind of, I think they kind of realize like, We've sort of created a monster here. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. like, what do we do about it? And, and I don't think they're happy with SEALs being the butt of every joke within the military profession. Um, so I think they're trying to turn that around. Because, again, it is unfortunate because there are a lot of active duty SEALs who are just totally straight up good dudes. And that's that's the thing. is like there, there's how, however many number of SEALs currently, but a few bad apples – and it's like all of a sudden now, now this is your reputation across the board. And it's like that's not the case. Like I'm sure the majority of the SEALs are great guys. And it, it gets the impression of like is being a SEAL about being a professional and serving your country? You know, you're a frogman. You're a Navy commando. Mm -hmm. Like that's something to be proud of. Or is it just um, – is it just a brand name that you use to sell protein powder and energy drinks, right? Well put. But – I think the military, I think the, the army units are, are also susceptible to that. Like, you know, I'm sure somewhere out there, there's like a range or CrossFit gym, you know, I, I'm sure. It has to be. Yeah. I'm sure it's all out there. It just is not to the level that it is with the Naval special warfare guys. So you don't see it quite as often, but I, I don't, I'm not trying to pretend like special forces or rangers or, or you know the units i served in are like above all of this and like like we would no. never we would never do any of this stuff because we're just we're so <laughs> professional like come on no no <laughs> and and, I, and who am i to say because 
I am also that guy uh, who I started a website that is about, you know, former special operations guys writing about the special operations world. So it's not as if I'm above all of that either. So uh, great. I mean, first off, thanks for the email, Scott. Um, secondly, great insight. I knew, and we've kind of been talking about, I mean, obviously with all the Eddie Gallagher stuff, uh, we talk about that fairly frequently. And I just feel like somebody put it in email form, like, you know, why are these guys not necessarily getting a bad rap? I mean, some of it is, are things that they're accused of doing, but why does it seem to be? Well, how, how come like every time you turn around, like somebody, somebody in the military misbehaving in some way and it's, Navy SEAL. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's a perception. Is, is it reality, though? Um, and I can tell you, because I've worked as an as a investigative journalist, it, it, it partly is a perception. Like, yes, there are SEALs doing things they probably shouldn't be doing, but there are guys on the Army side that are also misbehaving and, and doing stuff um, that we've covered here. Um, killings, murders, uh, drug trafficking, Spousal abuse. Yeah, the, like the whole gamut. Like, let's take the um, the Jason Sartori trial, the court martial where um, he was a. This was a special forces officer, and um, he was a, abusive towards women, um, and he was recently sentenced to ten years in prison. But that trial did not receive point zero one percent of the coverage that let's say the Eddie Gallagher trial has received. Now I was the only person who wrote about Sartori for over like a year. And then the army times finally wrote one article about it as he was about to be sentenced. Um, so that, so you got two articles out there. Well, three with a follow-up I wrote. So me and, um, Oh my gosh, I can't remember the woman's name at the army times who wrote an article about it. Finally, um, but okay, two articles about Sartori. That, that was it. So there's something on Eddie Gallagher every day. Every day, yeah. So there are soldiers in the army and army special operations who have done bad things and are have gone to court martial, have been drummed out of service, etc. But it hasn't received received the same coverage. So there is a perception issue at play as well. Okay. Well. Uh Perception isn't necessarily, I, I like the way you worded that. Perception isn't necessarily reality, but um, it's it's unfortunate that SEALs are getting a bad, it's not unfortunate because maybe they're doing it, maybe they're not, who knows? This this. So, I mean, some of them have it coming, and sometimes there is a culture there that gets out of control, um, and I think that's what we said on the last podcast, that what's come out of the, the Eddie Gallagher trial is like, that SEAL platoon is pretty out of control. And, and I didn't want to go back to that, but it's like, but, are the are the, the higher-ups, like, you know, are the inmates running the asylum? And it's just like, it just comes, it trickles down from that. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, if, if all I know is crazy behavior. Right. But at the same time, not every SEAL platoon is acting like that. Right. And people, right. people need to keep that in mind. And, like, what I what I would hate to think is that when people meet a Navy SEAL, they automatically have that conclusion, like book deals and hair gel. Like, no, no, they're like a lot of these guys are professionals, mm-hmm. and like we shouldn't jump to conclusions that like you know they're all just out for themselves or they're bad people. No, like, come on, not. like come on, man. 
and I, I do think it's a shame in some ways that they that the unit has kind of gotten that reputation over the years. So, as Jack said, if if you are a current seal, former seal, whatever, and you want to weigh in on this on this discussion, feel yeah, free, yeah, know? man. Or like if 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 you send us an email and I can verify you are who you say you are. I mean, you can even call in and you know you can talk about it uh, on, yeah, on not, a, I mean, it's, on a future podcast. It's with not us. like you're you know by no means are you trashing them. You're just giving an observation. No, no, I don't. I don't mean to trash the the entire you know special naval special warfare community by any means. Um, but I mean, there's former SEALs out there who can offer better insight to that than I can. Sure, absolutely. So feel free to reach out, please. Um, we are going to bring on Joe Goldberg, uh, former CIA, so no SEALs talk there. <laughs> um, but before we do that, I want to let you guys know that the show is brought to you by Airdrop. Airdrop is a new section on Crate Club where you can find essential gear and killer apparel that you can buy separately from our monthly and quarterly club subscriptions. There's some great stuff on there that's heavily discounted, but a lot of these items, they sell out quickly, so you want to move fast. For example, we've got a few more Cry Precision Ballistic Soft Armor inserts and Crate Club Fishing Spears, so get on those now, because if you look for things like the Gerber Multi-Tool, that's gone. You can't buy them anymore. You snooze, you lose. It's up, to, it's up now on its own section on CrateClub.us, or you can go to store.CrateClub.us to check it all out. That's store.crateclub.us. There's tons of gear that you're going to love that you can find on Airdrop. And with that, we welcome on Joe Goldberg. Joining us now, we have Joe Goldberg. Uh, first and foremost, every, th- every bio I've read on him, I want to make sure I mention this because he went both undergrad and he got his master's from the University of Iowa. He's a big Hawkeyes guy, so I want to get that Right out in the open, right off the bat. I feel like that's the most important thing we're going to talk about today. So go Hawkeyes. <laughs> uh, no, but in seriousness, he worked eight years in the CIA, covert actions, and he did information collection and analysis. And for over 30 years, he worked in the intelligence field, which is quite a lengthy career. Joe, that was a mouthful. Did I miss anything off the bat? Uh, you missed things. You added things, but that's just fine. I'm pretty much doing most of my time now. is spent teaching, which oh. goes in the consulting time. Congratulations! How's uh, how's yeah. teaching going? I like it. I, it's, uh, I my degrees from Iowa communications and politics. So See, I teach I, communications at a couple of colleges. I teach a course at Iowa a couple of times a year, and uh, keeps me busy. I like it. I knew that's where I would end up in education. Okay, that's cool. So, Joe, you uh, came as a recommendation from a, a good friend, uh, J.T. Patton is his pen name. Um, yep. I'm really glad that we could uh, get you on the show today. And uh, as I, I told Jason the last show, I always try to figure out how to break the ice, and I just kind of start off with, you know, how did a, a, a guy like you wind up in the intelligence business? Well, that's actually a good story. It's a good question. Uh, I'm an old schooler. I'm, I'm back in the 80s, so I was at Iowa. Uh, getting my master's degree. I actually wanted to go to law school, and I just pretty much bombed my LSATs like I expected and was kind of waiting around for some more applications to come around. And they came on campus to interview the CIA. I had a master's degree in communications. I had a, a degree in political science. I thought that was the best way to put my two interests together. There was a middle of the Iran-Contra, Nicaragua, whatever you want to call it, uh, time. There was protests on campus. I was the first guy to sign up. They were following the uh, uh, HR guy, the interviewer around. I went in and uh, had a pretty good interview. I was thinking this is a place I wanted to, to go. I always wanted to be in public service somewhere down the road. 
And it took about a year of various applications, and I got in. I went into uh, this fledgling uh, video and TV thing that was happening back in the 80s. I was like the only guy around that actually had a TV degree. So they came on campus. It was just pretty simple, but it took a while. Um, but I had an expertise I think they were looking for at the time. That's interesting. So they brought you in as a operations officer? No, I went into the Directorate of Intelligence. I was, a, I was basically the video librarian that uh, when the video came in from around the world or from the uh, stuff that was uh, recorded locally or domestically, I watched it for stuff that might be of intelligence interest. And when something happened overseas, uh, they didn't see those. When something happens, they don't seize the libraries. Right? They don't seize necessarily the newspapers. They seize the television stations. So when there is a Achille Laurel happened, so mm-hmm. that was all on TV. When Roman Vienna Massacre happened, that was all on TV. Marcos went down TV. Duvalier in the Philippines, in, uh, in uh, Haiti, all happened on television, and that was what we did. We were basically sort of a second watch office following uh, what was happening around the world on this, on this new 24-hour cable television and news services. And I would watch it, see what's happening, call up people who are used to reading reports that are coming across, you know, cables coming across the wire. I call up and say, hey, do you want to see what's happening in your country right now? Here it is. And they're like, well, apartheid, South Africa, all happened on television. And they, there, was a, there was not a mentality towards looking at video and images as intelligence. This is the 80s. So I was sort of a zealot saying, you know what, here it is. Here is what this person looks like right now. Here is what the forces look like. Here is, a, here is the ship Achille Loro. What do you, you know, like ground branch guys are over my shoulders. I'm popping Mitsubishi black and white photos off my TV so they can see what the, what the ship looked like. It wasn't off paper. It was off a of video. So I was, I was kind of the guy who went into DI and was doing all that, sort of watching TV and categorizing it. And as I was doing that, the operations guys sort of would come over and say, hey, we need something, and we need something, and, they would, and I would sort of have this mind for remembering things, and they'd say, oh, that's interesting. So basically one year exactly to my date of entry into the DI, the first moment I was able, they transferred me to the operations group and the propaganda. So I use my TV stuff there. That's really interesting. So like you were doing open source intelligence gathering before the Internet. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There was, when when uh, Tiananmen Square happens, although I was in this sort of a slightly different world, I was still doing uh, propaganda some, somewhat at the time. But all these things were happening, and it was all happening visually. There was no Internet. Forget that. And that uh, there was no social, there was zero. It wasn't even talked about. It, <laughs> CNN was a few years on the air. You know, the CNN effect back when it was, when it was CNN, it it had an impact on what we were able to see. It was, it was gathering 24-hour news, and it was being played around the world, and we were able to take advantage of that. And it was, it was all open source. There was, no, there was very little that I got that was internal. I did get some. We'll leave that alone. But mostly it was, uh, you know, if the minister of Syria, when there's hostages in Lebanon, comes on the television and wants to talk about things, I can call up the Syria branch and say, here he is. And I could call up the leadership branch and say, here he is. I could call up the bio guys and say, here's what he looks like immediately. immediately. That, was, that was all brand new. That was, that was cutting edge. Do you have any like... It was, it was just TV. 
uh, just this is kind of a broader question, but I, I'm very interested in this this idea that I, I think the advent of communications technologies is something that almost as a human species, like we haven't fully grappled with even now. Like we're, we're, we don't really know how to deal with it. And I feel like you were right there at the cusp of when 24-hour news came around and, and things were really starting to change. And I was just wondering if you have any observations on how that um, altered intelligence gathering, which you touched on a little bit, but even, even like in a, in a broader sense, like how it changed the world. Well, that's an excellent question. In fact, it's sort of a question I throw to my communications classes. And I, I say a couple things. Everything started somewhere, and everything's connected. So when I came along in the 80s, the, the, the patriots and the, and the intelligence community and the military previously had done so much to allow me to be there at the time when television and graphics and doing videos for uh, insurgents groups or whatever, doing propaganda operations. That was my time. And my time helped lead, hopefully, to uh, a new uh, appreciation for speed and for get, um, paying attention to what's real and what's fake. And a idea of if we have it, they have it. Okay, so if we have, if we're trying to figure out how to use television, radio, graphics, whatever it might be, as propaganda tools, which is what I did, then so are they. And are we ahead or are we behind? And now it became the Internet comes along, and we were at the forefront, we the United States, with the forefront of sort of how to use the Internet, and everybody catches up. And so the tools, we have a helicopter, they got a helicopter. We have the Internet, they got the Internet. How do you use that more effectively to get your message across? Then it becomes content, and content always wins. But uh, when it came down to the actual channels, it was, it was exploding at the time. But at our time, you know, it was videotape, and videotape led to digital. You know, digital led to basically the Internet and, everything, and all the capabilities that are out there now. But it's all connected. But it still comes down to content and message. It always comes down to content. Interesting. And, and then you got moved over to doing essentially disinformation, right? Well, I always call it, you know, disinformation is a tough word. I, 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 I can't define this, this disinformation. In fact, I wanted to, I sort of used to say, we just kind of tell the truth in our own way. You know, we let the, sometimes we just tell the truth about the Soviets are doing in Afghanistan. It's all you need. Mm-hmm. Or what's happening in Nicaragua or Uganda or or pick a place for the Castro. I mean, it's bad enough. You don't really need to do a lot of disinformation. You just need to tell the truth in your own way and get it to the people which are going to have an impact. That's probably the biggest. We, I think we were able to target. It was tougher to do, but we were able to target who we wanted to see our stuff a little bit better only because the Internet and social media are so pervasive. It's, it's you know, it, you can create websites and social media targeting the certain groups, but you still are just out there. When there was three or four television channels and whatever number of radio stations, you got them. You got a captured audience. So I think we could tar- we could have targeted them. We targeted the message better, whatever it might be content-wise. Disinformation, yes. Truth, yes. Um, current events, yes. Um, I always sort of lean on the side of the gray area between truth and not quite to the dark blackness. I, in fact, if you ask me, if you put up against the wall, did I ever do disinformation flat out lying about something? I'd have to think about it for a bit. I, I, I'm sure I did. I just can't remember the instance of, yeah, that's a lie. Um, we made stuff that was, that was, um, that its intent 
was not what people thought it was, <laughs> but but the content itself wasn't a lie. I don't think. So how good question. Then, then how is what you guys do different than what say the Broadcasting Board of Governors or Voice of America does? Well, I always get that. I get that's always a good question too. I mean, we have we have the, the perspectives that we're dealing with from the point of view of the intelligence community saying, hey. This is, our, this is what we're trying to get across. Go do this and, you know, let me know how it goes. And that's what we follow. We follow the rules of what the intelligence community says we, we can or cannot do. And we're not there just – I was never just trying to nation build, you know, American way, uh, you know, all, all legitimate good things, you know, giving news around the world. We were targeting certain specific topics, whether it be drug traffickers or if it was – Terrorists. I was after Gaddafi a lot. I was after narco traffickers a lot. Um, a little bit on, you know, the, all the Soviet Union. Number one, when there was when there was a Soviet Union. I mean, that's that's where I was targeting our stuff. And if, if and if Ronald Reagan gets up there, President Reagan says, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Tear down this wall." My whole life changes. All right, for six months to a year, because we're now working on the, the directive to work on the Berlin Wall. So. That 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 would say I would say different in, in you know the content and the message was specifically for the intelligence community as opposed to just the American way. And I, news. Could could you talk a little bit about that? Like when you say I, I'm just interested as far as as the extent to which you can talk about it. How does that actually work? That you you're you're producing content that is targeted. I mean, what what is that process? How does that work? And what what's the target audience? <laughs> Well, I don't think I don't know if the exact the process has changed too much between then and now. Um, obviously, it's really the intelligence cycle. Someone gives us something that we need to do, or we come up with an idea saying, "You know, this is a big deal. We need to be paying attention to this, or to act upon this." So, if it was Noriega and Panama, that didn't come to me. It was like, "Go, we're going after Noriega and Panama." And we need radio to do that, and we need radio content that is. Uh, saying certain things at certain times that uh, isn't going to be shut down by the government or is very difficult to be shut down by the government. So you sit around and say, how how can we do that? And, you know, you you think about it and you create the content, which is pretty much obvious what what we're trying to say about uh, drug trafficking Noriega versus what what we really want. And then you figure out what the, I'm trying to, now I'm skirting some of the edges here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. you write up the content that you know, and then you you create, and then you, I think what was great about this, and I'm not exactly sure if they have it now, we we were just trying to be creative. What what new things can we use to make people pay attention? Because even then, there was still a lot of stuff. And now, I mean, I teach social media, with social media and, and all the different channels, how do you grab people's attention? Mm-hmm. I mean, the terrorists have the same attention-grabbing tools in the captured audience as we do when we're trying to talk to them. And back then, uh, we had a captured audience, but the channels were television, radio, some print, lots of speeches. So, you know, how, you know is it music videos? Maybe. Is it documentary filmmaking? Yeah. Is it television programming, uh, serial programming? Could be. It's all, all these things that were you knew there was eyes on that particular content. Now, it's a little bit. I think it's a little bit more difficult to know when you put something out there on the on, on social media, Twitter, name your name your behind the scenes platform, who's actually reading it, what the number. I know they can. I know they can do the big data mining, but impact 
is always the question. Did that thing have an impact on that action? And I could never say it did. And I would never, it'd be very difficult to say it did. Uh, aren't there... What we did have an impact on bringing down the Berlin Wall. And I want to say yes, but I don't have any statistics to prove that. Uh, can you Could talk, we can you talk about, that. like, how you did that? I mean, was it, like, radio transmissions into East Germany? or? Uh, well, I was the video guy, and I uh, let the radio guys do their thing. Um, we did everything we possibly could. Uh, we I, you know, made documentary films. How do you get the docu- a short documentary film where it's seven minutes or 30 minutes? Seven minutes about is about people's attention span back then it's much shorter now but you know say you have a seven to 30 minute documentary film that lays it out that's really interesting you know it's made in the way that they you think that your end potential end users will be paying attention so you need to create a process where that gets distributed to you know intelligence uh assets who have access to the media who can place these things or in a position to go out and uh Gather it legally or open in the open means, so where it does, there's no suspicion on them that this is handed to them in some dark alley. They just got it through the normal course of their own business, and they're able to show that. Whether it's we did use uh, try to do music videos, we did try to do um, the things that the youth would would, would rally would would, would right. make them uh, pay attention. And music video, 1980s, mid 80s, thinking when they did music videos, our MTV had been on the air for just a few years. Everybody was doing these things. What's going to make the, the uh, youth movement on the East want to want to get up tight? Let's do something. Let's get some popular music person to write some popular song, at least in their area, and see if we can make something that might have an impact. To say, yeah, make it a number one song if we can. And and you know, we had to, we had the ability to think of those types of things and to try to do those types of things. So thanks thanks to my bosses for a lot for doing that. Sometimes they shut us down. Sometimes they, you know, I. I, I tried some things or brought some ideas that actually would help make the United States government make money off of it. But you know, they were they were a little bit too fringy for them, a little bit too far. Um, they didn't quite grasp some of my ideas. But, are, are there any um, like music videos out there from back in the '80s that we can like look up on YouTube and that the, that the CIA had a hand in? I got no. I, I I will never confirm or deny where we made it. We made a music video, and if I could, I wouldn't remember it. I know it was. <laughs> It, it was not in my language, let's put it that way. And um, uh, the answer, I, I would say no. I would say no. You know, um, I, I can't remember the names, the names of some of those things were, but there was a, there was a, there was activity behind some of those behind music. I mean, even nowadays, when I work in political campaigns and other things, you, you, you hit the culture where the culture sits. You know, social media, uh, mass communications are hitting. The, uh, the youth, the, the cultural movement that, that brings up the, brings up the countries, and we were doing the exact same things. We just had a little bit more limited tool set. Uh, so it was at that time it was music and short videos, and it was humor. Um, whatever, I like humor. Humor is very impactful if it's done right. Not everybody has the same sense of humor, yeah, so it's hard. It's very um, you have to be cautious using humor. But if you have an idea of your end users. If done right, it can have a nice impact. Sarcasm, of course, Saturday Night Live type of things. But the answer to your question in the short is, is no. <laughs> if I was in debate, I did everything wrong, but I teach people debate tactics for presidential politics. It's, the answer to the question is no, and then all that other stuff. And I wonder... I don't even know where to start. Oh, one, one of the other things I wanted to ask you is that back, back in the day when you were doing this, 
you could produce, you know, be it a documentary or a music video or, or um, there, of course, there's other people who do pamphlet drops. Um, there's all sorts right. of different propaganda. But you guys, I think, in your, in, your de- in your era, it was easier to target the audience. And I was wondering if today with the Internet, if there are legal implications, because when you put something on the Internet, it could potentially be viewed by an, an American oh. audience. And is that something oh, you have to deal with? Oh, that that drew me out of my mind. Blowback, right? So it was all brand new. So if we were making a video or some sort of film that was going to be showed publicly somewhere, it was right the oversight committee report because there's a chance for it to be blown back in the United States of America. And and the answer to that question was yes, uh, elected official or staffer for an elected official. It, there's a chance, but that's not the intent of what we're trying to do here, and it's going to have no impact in the U.S. It is, the, and by the way, the chances of it happening are slim and none. It's like we're not monitoring where it's, where, what's happening. But it was a very fourth vanguard of we're going to put something on the digital television waves, and, it's gonna, there's, and there is a chance it's coming back. And now it's coming back. And I actually have, it's a good question, and I don't ask these guys, but, and I'm sure people who are listening have an answer going, how come you don't know the answer, is how do you uh, keep what we're trying to do from not blowing back in the States? And i got to believe that there's just been a understanding that intent and, uh, you know, maybe telling it in advance, getting the, getting the types of approvals in advance they required, to overcome policy, because policy is always more restrictive than law. We're always doing with policies mm-hmm. about that. Uh, I've got to believe that the Internet and social media guys are out there now in the basements of all these buildings are, are, have the, the pr- correct roadmap and rules, because it's coming, it's, you know, the moment it's sent, it's here, right? So it's, there's got to have been a massive discussions about that. And I got to believe it comes down to messaging content and intent. When we made a video, if there was a defector, and there were a lot of defectors back then in the Soviet days, and if we had to make something for, you know, Reagan was a video guy, so we made videos for him to, to see these people, and we made sure that the agency symbol was on the very front of it. So there was no way when this got leaked to the Washington Post or whoever that it was, that it was seen as propaganda. It was, here's, we made this, and that was... There was just fear it was, and apprehension about that, at least in my, in my world. And i got to believe that the same fear and apprehension is there for the digital warriors, but they have the correct marching orders to move forward because it is out there. It is. I mean, now it's, it's like a, we're in a totally different era. And I, I wonder what you make of um, everything that happened in 2016 um, with you know uh, Russian influence operations directed against the United States, I mean, it seems like you're one you're one of our originals uh, when it comes to this sort of uh, quote unquote warfare. I was just wondering what you think of all of that. Well, that's that's um, that's um, a excellent question. I mean, I have my own personal views, and when it comes down to work, having worked in politics for these years, I've almost just staying away because it's just a very hot topic. But I'll give my opinion because you asked. This is Joe's opinion based upon experience. Yeah. First of all, if, we're do, if they're doing it to us, we're trying to do it to them. It's always the same. It's my first comment. 
uh, we've been they've been meddling in our politics. We've been meddling in other gov- governments. About meddling, it's been our mission, intelligence mission, to do things about certain countries' governments. That's that's what we're supposed to do, and all, I'm all for it. What the Soviets did was great, was brilliant. The Russians, sorry, what the Russians did was very simple, was very targeted, and they just used human nature to spread the word. And they, uh, you know, whatever, whether they were in the Macedonian kids who were just doing it for money or if they were being manipulated by other entities, and we know this is what the, the certain uh, Russian uh, intelligence people were doing, they did it, and they did it because they understood American culture and the split of our country. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I sort of have been wondering why it hasn't been brought up is, what happened was, if, if it's being, something's being covered in Twitter or on Facebook, which was the most of the places, it's getting picked up by the broad media. All right? if, it's a, if, it's, if I'm not uh, uh, following that website or that Twitter site or whatever, I'm not seeing it. I'm only getting it because some larger media entity has picked it up. Right. And what, what the 24-hour news guys who are you know, first to the news got to be breaking... Uh, it's a, the mentality that they're in now. We've got to have it first, first, first. We're going to say the name of this person, even though it's not the right name. We're going to we're going to have breaking news twenty four hours a day, which I haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, that can't be breaking news for twenty four hours a day. <clears throat> but so they are all culpable, all right, all of them, mm-hmm. and some worse than others, picking up the stuff that the Soviets knew that the mainstream media would pick up. They're wagging the dog. And they, their way, and they and they broadcast it to the people who are not registered for those Twitter sites or those Facebook sites, and made those stories that were being brought up by the Russians to these sites made them national news. In my opinion, and I don't know exactly how much conversation has been had about that, and that's a very simplistic discussion of what happened because it's pretty complex. But they did what we would do. What is the way human beings react to the news that's stuff that's coming to them? How do they use information? Do they what type of stuff do they act on? What do they not act upon? What do they tell their friends about? What do they share without even reading it? What entities do they trust the most? They trust their friends the most. They trust perhaps a certain news groups, mm-hmm. and then they get inside their bubble, and that's all they see. And the Russians understood that, and they played to that bubbles, bubbles, and put out hundreds and hundreds of sites and messages into those bubbles they got picked up by the broader media and those messages occasionally got spread and then it became a, a national news story and let's just say for the record that what they what they tried to do is abhorrent to our democracy and we should do everything we possibly can to pay them back um, <laughs> everything i mean it's, that is it's they're doing they're doing their jobs in a, in a in a Russian kind of way, but they they had the advantage of the American culture, society, freedom of the press, all those types of things, and the explosion and sort of uncontrolled world of social media to just wrangle around and ride. Do, do you think, and they did it good enough. Do you think that Americans are particularly naive when it comes to being susceptible to these sorts of influence campaigns? Absolutely, and statistics prove it. It's part of my class. It, I mean, I, I, I am a believer in the filter bubble, um, which is, you know, we all, we, we pretty much got ourselves inside the news that we want to accept, and our friends that we uh, uh, follow or are friends with, 
in information sharing wise they're they're inside the bubble and it's very hard to get that stuff that might be more balanced or outside your bubble because that's not the way the algorithms work all right and so the if you fill the algorithms of, of the of the major um, computing companies whether the the news filtering companies with their the stuff that you want you're going to get the stuff that you want and human nature and, and pew research and pick a research company they say that people share the stuff. They, they, don't, they don't read what they share. It's just the title is something they agree with. They never look. They very rarely look at the source. I actually quiz my classes, and these are you know college kids, or, and they say, where do you get your news? What news journalists do you trust? Who do you go to when you hear something? The, do you check out the sources? And the answers are almost universally zero. I mean, in, in, in our day, it was, you know, you always watch Walter Cronkite or you watch Huntley Brinkley. And then, and then the, early, the early good news days in the, in the 90s, I don't know, maybe it was Wolf or whoever it might be. And I, but no, but there's no journalist today that people can go to and say, ah, that's a person who I trust for news. And what they say is filtered because it's filtered the way that is believable. And now those people don't exist. It just comes. And it comes from something.com, and it's been forwarded to yep. me by some friend of a friend, and I like the title, so I'm just going to share it to my friends. And maybe not even read it, probably not even read it statistically. And that is the way we work. That's the way the, the Internet works and the human nature works, except for the rare cases of people who do pay attention. But the majority of people just let life happen. And the Russians played into that. They did what they can do in 2016. We have to make sure it doesn't happen again. But that's and that's what's led to the sort of the split culture we have, because you're going to get what you like and you're going to get what you don't like, and same thing with the other guys, and you're never going to talk to each other because the information that you're getting doesn't allow you to think across the lines like outside your bubble. Because I mean, that's that's exactly what intelligence services do, right? They look for a, a schism in society, some sort of social cleavage, and jam themselves in there, and it's basic divide and conquer, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You, if you're if you're giving your if you're, unless you're trying to shore up your base or you're trying to shore up somebody who's in, in, in power, you're trying to show up the the populace in the country that is that may have been uh, oppressed or you know you're giving them the message that will make them in in a broader sense enlightened and think the way that you bring ideas in their brains that you want them to think about and process them in a way that you hope they're processed to our way. And you're going to find the, the whether it's the tribal leaders or you're going to try the, the, the ownership of the media where it's a little bit more you know, controlled in other countries. They're, they're, you, know, you know who the owners are. And you can go to them and you might go to say, do this for us. And they, own, they also own all the newspapers and they, and they have certain uh, regional or tribes or ethics behind them. You can go to them and you can put that message in there and you can just pump it out. And you can pump it as much as you possibly can to solidify that your issue and to keep pushing, as you say, schism, keep pushing it further to, to suffocate them and to give us more space to operate. And uh, but the, in, in the digital world now, that is that is 24-hour job. And, and I mean, I was carrying videotape around. Right, there was mailing things out because that's the way that was the internet of the time. All right, if you need, if you wanted to get your stuff to somebody, they wanted your, they wanted to videotape in some country because it's expensive stuff. They could, they could run it and then they have a free videotape. They have videotape. You know, that's a totally different mentality than it is now because we're just saturated, positively and negatively. The filtering 
Messaging, content, and filtering is what makes propaganda operations and information flow and or not flow, effective and not effective. Yeah. It all comes down to message. I think it's uh, it's amazing what you just said before that you know people assimilate information and then very quickly forget the source of that information if they ever even knew in the first place, and then it just exactly. becomes sort of an established fact in their mind. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. But when I worked in I worked in Motorola for, for for years and years in the corporate area, and the first thing one of my bosses says is, if you put a number or a word up on the board here, it's sticking. And I knew that from my old days, but I, I was learning the corporate world. You, know, you say this, they're not going to. You can you can uh, give qualifiers all you want. This is I'm just you're asking for a number, and this is the same thing for campaigns. How much is this campaign going to cost me? I don't know. Well, I need a number. Well, okay, I'm going to put a number up here, but it may not be the right one. So don't stick with it. But it sticks. It sticks every time because they've seen it. So if someone sees a headline that says something. It sticks, and it's very hard to, to unstick things because, once again, inside their own universe of information, they're getting more sticky things that support that. They're very rarely going to be seeking out things that are going to unglue. And if you can find an indiv- the individuals or the um, demographic which is more open to uh, various thoughts, alternative issues or ideas or um, well, I guess that alternative issues, ideas, or channels to get things, then you have a way to to well, manipulate, to communicate your message through. You know, it's you know, America was was primed to be used. American people are primed to be used. I don't know if that's even changed that much, um, but you know, it, if we're trying to get to a population overseas, you have to know the culture. You got to know it from the from the president to the leadership to the village leaders to whoever it might be and same thing for local political campaigns where you're not getting your message across it's just why say something if it's not going to have an impact on the people you're trying to get to and you need to understand fully how they get their information what drives that culture what drives them to act fully so how do that you was th- harder back in the 80s <laughs> how do you think we begin to counter this in the united states when we we have a very naive population i mean how how do we wage counter information warfare well i asked that question I mean, this is america right we're we're freedom of the press and right. freedom of speech and you have a right to say good things and bad things right yeah yeah so i asked my student my, my students this because they are the, the media users they they are total digital natives they've never read a newspaper very rarely in a newspaper or magazine or a book in fact almost it's almost i always do a survey and it's almost zero of them have read a newspaper, book, or magazine, very, very small numbers. It's all YouTube and um, not even Facebook, but YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat. So how do you, how do you, that's the new culture. How do I, if, if I was going to go after those, if I was on the outside coming in, you're going after the youth. If I was my guy, if my time, I was saying, how do we use, how do we communicate, not use, how do we communicate, break, uh, enlighten the users of social media so that they are able to think, uh, uh, appreciate, accept, even looking at a different viewpoint. And that's kind of how I run my class, my, my social media class, to, to let them 
think these new things. And, they, and it comes down to, I don't know. The answer to your question, once again, is I don't have an answer because it's so huge. America's so diverse. The, the new apps are, are hundreds a day. How do you control that? How do you, how do you get into that? And the answer is you can't. And it, 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 if you don't, we don't have, we don't have a national consciousness like we used to. Right. In the old days, Mostly, you watch Walter Cronkite. You watch Huntley Brinkley too. But you, you know, Walter Cronkite would say something, and we would go, "That's news. It's it's not editorialized. This guy is giving us the news." Then you watch Johnny Carson at night to see how you felt about it. All right, Johnny would do his. Johnny wasn't political, but he would he would laugh about things, and he would make you feel. He would bring up the society and the news of the day, and he would make you think about it. Where Walter informed you about it, and that doesn't exist in today at all. The Daily Show and, and, and John Stewart sort of was doing that, and the guys now sort of doing that. But there's so many of them now. You know, what's this? used to be just daily, and then and then they now there's a lot of them, and, and every network is trying to have theirs. So how do you how do you grasp that? And the one constant actually in the United States culture. What's let me ask you? What's the one constant in the United States culture that's been around for thirty, forty, uh, fifty, forty years of uh, in American sort of uh, consciousness? I got to think about my timing here. Forty years. years of consistency in American consciousness. Uh, yeah, it's, it's Saturday Night Live. I'm gonna make you home now. Saturday Night Live has been around since '75. Yep. It's been there every week, except for reruns, and it's changed its political, you know, discussion. It's it's pro. It's against. It is what it is. But people watch it and has has had a following for decades. That is. Um, of a certain kind, but it's consistent. And, and on Monday or sa- Sunday, everybody's running Saturday Night Live routines. We did it when we were kids. You'd, go, you'd, you'd watch Saturday Night Live, then you'd go to school on Monday, and you'd do all the routines, right? Those are the originals. You know, it was, it's, what, it's been around forever. So I think that is one that has been at least there. You can say Tonight Show and those types of things, but they've changed. They've changed leaders. They've changed sort of they've changed everything. But there is, no, you ask the question, what news person does our current culture have that we might be able to influence to make the break that thing that you're asking about? There is no answer. When yeah. the shooting happens in the United States, I ask my class that manually, where did you hear it? Where did you hear about this first? Twitter, Facebook. I got this text from a friend. Then I ask the next question. Where did you go once you heard about it? Where did you go to find out more about it? And I say, is there a, I say, is there a specific person or location that you went and the answer is universally, there is nobody universal. They just right. kind of go out. Right. Nobody trusts these news networks. Nobody. Nobody, nobody trusts these social media uh, giants either. So it's just like total tribal chaos, and, and people get, in, get their information now from memes, which is incredible. Memes. Well, I agree. I teach memes because memes have a, have a political impact. GIFs have a, guess, but GIFs have a, yeah, GIFs, have yeah. a political impact. Yeah, tell, right. tell us more about that. Well, I mean, uh, uh, I mean today's the Democratic uh, uh, debate meme day and, <laughs> and, 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 and GIF day, which is, I was kind of just actually kind of looking at some of those before it came on. They're going after Delaney. He seems to be the one that seems to be the comic relief. Um, whether you like him or not, but he happens to be the one people are talking about the most because he had the most facial expressions, I guess, and Twitter went off on him. But, you know, if, if someone puts out a meme that's inaccurate, or is biased, that may not be inaccurate, it may actually be 
positively truthful, but it's brought up in a biased way. It's not showing the story. That number is correct, comma, but. Here's the fine print. And people look at that, and then they forward it on. And it's every topic, every domestic topic you can think of. You know, I, I don't, I, there's actually memetruth.com or some site like that I look at that sort of says, is the data in this meme uh, real? But someone says, this amount of people, have, we spent this amount of money in wars overseas. This many people have died. We've killed this many people. This is what the minimum wage should be in other countries. Other countries have health care. Whatever might be your issue, I, mean, I don't care whether, what, your, what your point of view is. But when that stuff comes out and people see it and it's been biased, it gets sticks, just like my other comments a while ago. It sticks in people and it gets forwarded. And those who, the people who create it know it and they pump it out. It's, 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 it's the Macedonian kids in 2016 who, who put out all those uh, clickbait types of titles because they knew people were going to click on them. And, and they, they, they didn't have any political point of view. They just knew that these memes and these titles, these, these headlines were meat, and people were going to grab them. And the meme guys are exactly the same way, and they're easily shareable. You don't need to do anything. That's what makes them so impactful. And it's and uh... just do it. It, it's fascinating to talk to people who share them too, because I've I've brought up to people who share a meme, like one that's just completely false, a hundred percent false, where it's showing a picture of somebody. You're saying it's this person, but it's really not that person at all. And I point that out to them and give them some additional information and say, like, look, this is factually inaccurate. And finally, when they're confronted confronted with the facts, they will the last resort. They'll come back to you and they'll say. Maybe it's not factually accurate, but the spirit of it is true. Exactly. Exactly. Almost your comment is almost is exactly correct because it is. It has. We wormed its way back into their bubble, and their bubble is filled with filled with things that they feel is the right, uh, you know, sense of what they want to feel, and so it becomes it becomes something to them. It fortifies it on both, on all sides, all sides. Yeah. Um, this isn't like it's a let Democrat, Republicans, I don't believe, you know, left, right, middle. Everybody has, is, is this, has their schisms and their fringes. This isn't a them versus us. It is an, it is an American uh, information culture, a, a way that we think that is becoming much more difficult to have openness, if that, that, which is a vague word unto itself. But a, a decent exchange of ideas. And when I when I talk to people, I say, you know, and, and they give me this information. They say, I saw this on there, and I ask them, where'd you see that? Where'd you get that? And they say, I don't know. And I say, kind of think. Well, then I say, then I say, I'm not going to talk to you about it because what, what's the point? But I ask you, I'm one of those guys who kind of tries to read behind the scenes, not the news. I kind of try to read the actual document, perhaps, or things, just so I can be a little bit more. Uh, informed about it, and that's that's a not that just shuts shuts down conversations because, as you say, they keep falling back and falling back and falling back to the point as well. I, I basically I believe it anyway. It may not be true, but I, I it it, it yeah, I believe it. First of all, it exists. It, it exists on the air, therefore it is. But now we we all use the same meme. Um, don't believe everything on on the what you see on the internet. Said Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Right. That's. And that you know the famous water, right? You know Einstein, but that is very telling. That is a very sarcastically truthful thing because people believe everything they see on the internet, mostly because it fits into their 
mindset, and it's being, their mindset is being fed by computers and by their the, the associates around them, friends, family, colleagues, whatever it might be. They're, and they're not having a chance to see other things. And so when it comes down to how, as a propaganda guy, try to get through, I, 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 I'm wondering what they're doing nowadays, because I'm sure they're, they're geniuses at it, and, they, and they, they've kept up, and they know exactly what they're doing. It's just a, I'm, a, I'm sure they're the best. I'm, I'll say this. I guarantee you, our guys are the best in the world. I mean, no one's got better Internet people in the United States of America. So I can guarantee that they, are, they know what they're doing. But, boy, their job has been made hard by the digital world, and it's not coming back. You, you think our intelligence professionals are doing a good job at, at waging the uh, information campaign? Well, that's different than saying, talk about their qualities. I, I don't have the metrics, if I go back to saying, I don't want to talk about things on that data. I don't have the metrics to say whether we're doing a good job or a bad job. I want to believe we're doing a good job. I, I know that there's been, there, there's a wide uh, spectrum of issues that they need to talk about when it, you know, pretty much starting with the terrorism world all the way up. In my day, it was narcos and communists. Now it's really terrorists and terrorists. And so, you know, saying effective is what was I did on Berlin Wall effective? I don't know. I know we did it, and we did it well, or whatever, pick a topic, pick narco trafficker, whatever it might be. So I, I believe, first of all, that our people are the most qualified best in the world. And they have all, hopefully they have the tools and the flexibility to do what they want to do. When it comes to effectiveness and impact, I have to leave it to them because I don't know what they're trying to do. I don't know who they're talking to. I don't know what means they're, means they're using, what their target is. So I would be totally, totally out of my world to say that they're doing a great, a bad job or, or, or any sort of, any sort of comment like that. I just know, I just know that they're good. I just, they are. There are people who do what they do this is sort of the point of when I write my own stuff is they're patriots. These are the people nobody knows about who get up every day and they work their asses off. They're not going to get stock options and promotions. Mm-hmm. and Their worst fear is to be showed up on the front page of the New York Times or Washington <laughs> Post. And, and they are doing a hell of a difficult job and not asking for much. And, they're, and they are the best trained, best thought. And they always were my day. They were the days before. Everybody has their morons and their jerks and their idiots and their and their bad guys, bad people. I get that, but overall, the drone bees who keep the operations working, who buzz into work every day and buzz out, are the best in the world, the United States. I would I would take back in my day. I'd say I'll take the Soviets on in propaganda operations any day of the week. Really, they they had a different. Um, They had a different style. Uh, they uh, had sort of a different audience. Okay. Because I see people sharing links to on on Facebook to RT to this day, anti-American yeah. propaganda. And these are these are most of my friends on social media are veterans who love this country, but they're still sharing RT links. Well, there's and, 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 do I read RT? Look at RT. I occasionally do because I want to know. Yeah, yeah, I understand in your case. Yeah. I, but, and, and once again, not everything everybody's saying is ridiculous 
were untrue. They're doing the same. They're doing this is within the realm of things that people are going to accept. And or it's what I, what I like to do is here's all the stuff that's real and true. This is the news. This happened. It was sunny. It was rainy. There was a bullfight. And then in the middle of that, you put in your your thing, which looks like everything else. Right. It's sort of like it's you know it's it's news branding. It's you know you, you put your thing in. And it gets played along with everything else, so it gets the validity of everything else around it. And true, traditional, good old-fashioned yellow journalism propaganda. You know, everything's right, and then there's this thing, but you can't see it because it looks like everything else. That that has been around forever. It's going on right now in the digital world. Are, are your friends or my friends enlightened enough to go and see what RT really is? No one's telling them that they have to. I ask my students, who, who is dinkdinkdink.com? I don't know. So I make them do an assignment to go in and find out who these guys are and tell them if they're real or not. To open, I'm trying to open their eyes to the fact that maybe that stuff that they're just you know, gobbling up just may not be the right stuff. And by the way, then tell your friend. I have no other way, I have no other way to figure out how to do it besides just to make these guys think a little bit more critically about what they're sucking into their brains and don't accept everything. And if you've never had even someone even challenge you on it, you're never going to do it. And what's RT? Well, our teams are by the Russians. I'll big the Russians. It's a country. It's a big country. Their enemies are a big deal. They haven't anything to me lately. All right, so I'm going to read it. That's, that's the way it's going to be. And it's, very, and it's impossible to stop. But what, what can we do? We need to get our message out there and get it out there better to the people that we want to get the message out to. You know, broad propaganda, I didn't have a lot of taste for. It. Just, uh, it's not something, broad propaganda shouldn't even exist. And right? says, what good is it? Propaganda is targeted. It's getting our message. I mean, I know there's big open propaganda. That's not what I did. I did, we're supporting the intelligence community, supporting the president. This, this, this. I didn't like to do rain for. In fact, I left when, I left for various reasons, but sort of the last stuff I was doing was, let's, let's talk about the rainforest. Oh, really? And, and, pharmaceuticals from flowers, which is a really huge topic. No problem with the topic. All in. But do I want to spend my time collecting and creating stuff on that? I didn't have, no. That's not why I left, but that's the last stuff I was kind of doing. Like, come on. Yeah, I mean, what's the point? I mean, I mean the environment's a bit, I mean, I'm not, I'm not pulling the rainforest. I'm all, you know, don't tear down the rainforest. And, you know, we, if we need to have access to these plants that give us, help our pharmaceutical industry make the drugs that we need, to, I'm all in on it. Who are you trying to talk to about that? The Brazilian farmers chopping down the rainforest, they're not paying attention to it. You're talking to the Brazilian government, are you kidding? They're making, they're making millions and millions off, off these industries. How, how much impact am I going to have saying, saying this in a targeted propaganda operation? It would be doable. It would take a long time and a lot of money. But that, they, weren't, they weren't going to do that. They weren't doing that. It was just like, oh, do this. Come on. If you do it, do it right. I was wondering, on that note, if you could tell us a little bit about your novel and maybe a little bit about what it's based on. Novel one or novel two or both? Um, let's start Where off with start? let's start off with one and go into two. Well, one is is uh, uh, let me quote unquote fiction. Any resemblance anyone living and dead is pretty coincidental and a figment of the author's imagination. Do you get that? Um, it is. I wrote it as historical fiction. I actually wrote it between 1999 and 2001, and talk about digital versus analog. 
the week, the day, two days before 9-11, September 11th, 2001, I had a stack of manila envelopes with printed papers and cover letters and things to send out to agents in New York. And then my book, which is about Gaddafi and Libya and our response at, to the Bell Disco bombing, our bombing of Libya, mm-hmm. of, of Tripoli, and then underneath that is this propaganda operation to manipulate uh, the officials in Libya uh, to do things and act upon our way. It's about as close as I can get. You know, they got to prove it's 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 um, close to real in some senses. But uh, you know, it, it, I had this letter ready to go. Nine eleven happens. I rip open all these packages and write my we write my cover saying terrorism if now now if not now when. And this is this is 2001, and I got a couple of comments back saying, "Oh, nobody wants to read about terrorists." You know, everybody's afraid. Of course, that was wrong because all the great authors, the Brad Thors, the Vince Flynn's, yeah. and, and all these Mark Mike Mark Graney, and all these guys wrote about that in that time frame, and all the other authors, yourself and whoever, are writing about real heroes, super military action thrillers, and that market took off. I didn't publish. I life gets in the way. 2014 happens. I have a lot of things that happen in my life. I said, I'm gonna get this book out. Finally, I rewrite it. Put it. I make it. I just make it better. And I self-publish it, and it becomes an Amazon bestseller. Oliver North gave me review, good review. Um, Dewey Claridge, who's actually I have a character based upon him in this book, and actually my next third book. Um, he he created the Counterterrorism Center mm-hmm. in uh, CIA. He's, one of my mentors and friends. Um, you know, he's in it. He gave me a good review. Mark Graney gave me a good review. I mean, and it sold. It's, it still continues to sell uh, eBay, um, print and um, electronically. It's, I, and actually, I called it Secret Wars, which is you know a euphemism for propaganda. Secret Wars, an espionage story. Because so I wanted it to be about the world of espionage. And my tribute is to my family and to the Patriots. I use that phrase because the Patriots are the people who this book was dedicated to. I used very few names of characters because it's about these people, you know, the, the intel officer, the specialist, the man, because they are unnamed people working in the trenches to keep us safe every day. And it's not, it's not the, you know, it's an okay book for being self-published, but it was, it was built for the Patriots. I can tell you the Patriots story if you have a second where I got that yeah. phrase. I mean, I was in a training class, in one of my numerous training classes of the day, and they bring in a, a knock, a non-official cover guy who's retiring. So this is actually a scene in the book, once again, fictionalized book. And to make it short, he was talking about the life of a knock, and he was retiring. And he had been a very successful knock, made a lot of money in his cover jobs in his world. And he basically was going to give it back because he said, I... And he was getting all this, oh, that's yours, you earned it. It's like, no, it's, I, was, uh, I earned it for a reason, for a purpose, which is to help the country. And so he was getting a lot of praise for that insight. And he, and he was the one who said, you do it because you're patriots. And he looked at us and goes, you are the patriots. You're the people who are out there who are doing this job and no one's going to know about it, and, you, and you're doing it for, for everybody else. I never forgot that. I made a scene in the book. I dedicated the book to people. It's about people, people, people. So it was Secret Wars, an espionage story. And then I kind of wrote a, a uh, sequel to it, but I got a lot of 
the people saying, write a contemporary book. Nobody cares about historical fiction. They want to read now, now, now. So I worked in corporate intelligence in Motorola for 16 years, so I, and I had my little stories. I still have my agency background. So my current book, which is called Spy Devils, um, is a merge of uh, corporate intelligence and uh, global espionage, uh, uh, Chinese assassins and Ukrainian oligarchs and, C- and CIA and corporate malfeasance. And almost nothing in it is not in the newspaper somewhere, and I just kind of piece it together based upon true experiences or not. And that, right now I'm currently seeking out an agent. No, if not, I'll self-publish it at some point. But um, any agents out there, let me know, because um, you know, it's, it's not bad. And the third one is going to be a, a shared universe between Secret Wars and Spy Devils. Oh, cool. So, but the first book is all propaganda all the time. Actually, Spy Devils, they use their main tool... Think, think sort of a Mission Impossible, guys who aren't Mission Impossible. Their main tools are social media. They expose bad actors' actions on social media and bring them down, whether it's internally or externally to their own organization. How do you mess up a, a drug cartel? You make them start eating themselves from inside by spreading rumors, yep, sort of yep. news and stuff. And that's what the spy doubles do. That's their main tool. That's kind of what the book is about. That's a little bit. That stuff is super interesting, um, and you know, selling a novel is is really a tough tough deal. I know because I've tried as well. Um, yep. and it's just really hard, and especially everyone's all about counterterrorism, and it's really hard to sell the espionage plotline, which in a lot of ways is more important um, than necessarily just shooting one person in the head. Like you said, isn't it better if you can turn the organization against itself and, uh, the American taxpayer doesn't have to send our soldiers <laughs> to this country yeah. to deal with it. Yeah. Um, right. you know, it, it's cool that we had seal team six go and shoot bin Laden. I mean, he had it coming, but wouldn't it have been even better if bin Laden just died in a cave somewhere completely irrelevant? And no one even, even cared about him. In uh, a perfect world. He would have been dead right away. Yeah. But it didn't happen. So we spent 10 years doing what we do best, hunting them down and killing them. Um, uh, well, I agree. See, I agree. I, I, I enjoy all the books of the, of the uh, I would say, military action thriller. You know, great, you know, very entertaining and engaging books. I, when I started writing again, I went back and listened to and read all John Le Carre, all Frederick mm-hmm. Forsyth, Daniel Silva, um, even now that and the Jason Matthews and new stuff. Books that are spy books, espionage books, but don't depend upon action to drive you know, military or combat action to drive the story and don't necessarily have the, I would say, superhero person who uh, is sort of the main focus. Now, can, they all have superhero lead people. You know, Gabriel Alon is Daniel Silva, but he's not, he is what he was, and now he is. You know, he's an espionage guy. He runs an intelligence organization. So it's not as if there's a shoot up every, every day on the street. So I, I, I love those books. I, J.T., and the, he writes them, J.T. Patton. You know, and he writes sort of an, a little bit more of a psychological, political, military thriller, yeah. which is even different in itself. So, but I, always, I, I want to believe it's still a space for, I'm not going to say literary espionage fiction, but stuff that doesn't necessarily depend upon a singular superhero type of former military guy who are all great um, doing the only the things only impossible things that only they can save my books I try to have people 
intersecting in places that they never saw coming. And you know, if you're a corporate walk and suddenly one day you've got to deal with corporate espionage and bad oligarchs and bad leadership and you know illegal things, what do you do? All right, and it's and you're dealing with global. Suddenly one day you're worrying about feeding your kid as fish sticks, and next day you're in the middle of the world of global espionage. And I try to bang those two things kind of together. Sort of, kind of did it in in Secret Wars, and definitely I'm doing it in Spy Devils. And we'll do the same thing in Book Three, which I haven't quite named yet. Oh, so that that's great. that's my gig, and it's and it's hard because no one, like you say, no one. You've got to be, you know, really, really good. I wouldn't say I'm really good. I don't say anything about me, but there's a the market for those types of military slash espionage spy book spy keeper books is much smaller than the really good you know filler market you know the, the way it is in, in science fiction it's been done um that they there's like like in ghost in the shell it deals with this unit called section nine and they do they are superheroes doing counterterrorism and stuff like that but it also is the first uh that i've seen that it really the plot lines combine the disinformation cyber warfare Counterterrorism, um, all uh, political warfare, all those things kind of combined into one. But that's a Japanese comic book that was later turned into a right. film, and I've I've never really seen in um, in the United States. I've never really seen it done well. So maybe you're maybe you're going to be the one who accomplishes that. Nah, I don't. I don't because because there's one thing, and I say this, but it's all about money. If it's not a commercial book, which is not going to sell a lot, then the agents aren't going to spend their time. Spend their time, and, and why? Why are they going to spend their time and take a risk on something which is maybe less proven than young adult fantasy books? Yeah. Or now with uh, Game of Thrones, or I mean, if you go through the agents, what they're publishing, you see what's hot, and this is not. You know, am I am I trying to start to maybe fill a hole? Maybe maybe I am. Maybe some of us will will start getting into more literary stuff. I don't, but it comes down to whether it can sell or not. And this, and it all goes back to our very first conversation about culture, what people read and accept. Yeah. P- people quite rightly and should enjoy a variety of books and the variety of books they're liking in the sort of Miller thriller agency spy caper, you know, 24 hours, Jack Ryan stuff is much more action oriented because action is visual and exciting but John Le Curry didn't have any of that, and he wrote two or three or four of the best spy books ever that have all been made into movies or, sp- or miniseries. Well, it's, you know, it's how many people? How many people die in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? Couple. Well, well those, those books were a product of their time in the Cold War. Yep. And, exactly. And today, I, I think the the audience they understand. Navy SEALs fast rope onto a compound, blow down the front door, kill the terrorist inside. Like everyone can wrap their mind around that. But you get a, a Joe Goldberg here talking about like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make this, uh, you know, propaganda videotape with some actors in Hollywood, and then we're going to feed it into this foreign country, and it's going to influence the deputy uh, minister of defense. Yeah, th- th- like people have a hard time wrapping their mind around that. Yep, I, and I absolutely agree. And and I and it's uh, no. No sour grapes are whining on my part. I, I write the story that I write. Yeah, Authors yeah, should yeah, write I, what they want to write. Definitely. And there's a whole new world of self-publishing out there if it comes down to that. The, the literary market needs to figure that out. They're trying. You see they're trying. But I, I wanted to try the, the Aiden's world. And, but you're right. The, the, the population and culture can wrap their heads around action. TV, 
studios, Netflix with its, you know, the new golden age of television. You know, they, they, they have, there's a chance there for more of a variety, but it's going to have to have a, check off some buttons. And you know, although I will say, and this is when I tried to push Secret Wars in 2014, I said, listen, guys, Argo is winning Academy Awards. Yeah. All right. The Americans is one of the top television programs on TV, and guess what? None of that stuff is happening. By the way, they're set in the 80s. All right. So there is a market yep. for historical fiction things or things that uh, don't necessarily have to have something blow up before the commercial break. And so that was, that's what I was trying to pinning my hopes on, that there was examples of this out there. Maybe they were only examples because they were the past. They were historical. And, he, and absolutely, trends change. That's the past. Nowadays, currently, it's not that. And don't whine about it. I think you're right. There is some market for it. It's, it's just a matter of getting you know, producers and publishers to yeah. be, on, be on board to take the risk. Yeah, that's on me. And, and, and maybe there's the one person out there who, who wants to do it. But once again, you know, there's a lot of people such like yourself who've, who've come back from uh, dangerous, interesting, uh, every adjective you can think of that explains having put your life on the line for your country, who are writing great materials that are very entertaining to people, who, they, who, who can leave their living room and go sit in a vehicle in some desert somewhere shooting some sort of weapon. And that's the escapism that, that this type of stuff provides, whether it's in a book, e-book, or, you know, visually. So I get that. I get that. And, and, and the people who are doing that are doing a, a, a superb job of it. They're, they're covering a wide spectrum of people's interests across American culture on what they're interested in reading about on these topics that they never get a chance to experience except for through television and newspapers. Well, speaking of which, Joe, I mean, we'll have to have you back on again sometime if you're interested, because you do have a particular expertise on a subject that is really hot in the headlines the last couple of years, which is influence, propaganda, information. Um, I feel like you I feel like you have a lot more that you could enlighten us about on these topics. Well, I have a motto, a motto I've used since my first day in the agency, which is Anything I can do to help, let me know. And I always mean that. Thank so you. So if there's something I can do, you want me to come back, anybody who's listening wants to give me a call or say I'm full of it or wants to discuss something, I'm all in. If I can help, that's my job as a human. No, oh, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate that and appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Um, thank is there, you. Is there anything, before we go, is there anything else that we really should have brought up that we didn't? We talked about a lot. I'm, I'm yeah. trying, to, trying, to, trying to take notes here saying what am I being repetitive about, but you asked some good questions and I mean, there's always the current events issues, which no one has all the background on. Uh, there's an election coming on, which is going to be interesting, seeing how, the, how mm-hmm. the media and news flows and seeing how we're paying attention to any outside influences. So all those topics are, are fair game at some point down the road. Yeah, maybe that's a good thing to bring up as we go into the 2020 election. As we get a little deeper into it, have you back on to talk about it from an information aspect? Whatever I can do to help. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. All right, man. Have a good uh, rest of your week and a good weekend. Thank you very much. I'll be hanging up now. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. That was Joe Goldberg, a very interesting conversation. The um, Propaganda, he he got a little upset about the word propaganda. Um, He... No, he he didn't want to use the word disinformation. Yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. He he (laughs) said, you know, it wasn't necessarily a lie, what we were saying. Right, right, right. So it's... That was... uh, Fascinating. At the end, it was the 
for me to sit back and, and like you put it perfectly. It's like because you spoke, I mean, you weren't speaking to me, but I'm one of those idiots that I can resonate more with, you know, rappelling down, kicking in the oh, door. Oh, yeah. And Everyone can. Right. In the military itself thinks like that. Like we like counterterrorism as opposed to, say, unconventional warfare or FID or some of the other missions we have. Because when you do those direct action missions, like, you go into the room, you shoot a target, and you can see little like you see the results. Right, yeah, right, right. It's right. easy for us to understand, and it's easy to measure to quantify the results. But to to Joe's point, he was saying how like Netflix and the Golden Age. I think a you know um, what was the name of his the one book uh, Secret Wars an espionage an espionage story. I think if Netflix gives it the or, or any form of you know Amazon, however you stream your shows gives it the opportunity to you can plant a seed in like season one let's say and you can watch throughout the course of the show like even if it's only you know four or five seasons but like you know that like joe you know joe goes and pitches it and he's like here's the end result whatever it is like but the the story to get from point a to point b instead of just a i feel like these you know these action stories are straight line you know obviously the shortest distance boom we go, you know, something happened to us, we're going to retaliate. That's the end result. Where you get a, a, an espionage story and counterintelligence and stuff like that where it's, you don't, you, like, there's so many interwoven stories where you could get lost in, per se, but, like, there's so much going on. And, I, like, he, he mentioned The Americans, and The Americans was an incredible TV show because there was that tension of, like, you know, they're living, I mean, are you familiar? Like, obviously I, you're familiar. I haven't seen it. Um, but like he, he, they're living with, you know, they're Russians living in, in America, like suburbia and they're working for the American government. And there's just like the whole time there's this tension of like, when are they going to get caught? Like, you know, you know what the end result's going to be. And it's like, when's the shoe going to drop? And it's just, you can, you can play with that so much. And I think that like, obviously I'm, like I said at the beginning, I'm one of these idiots that are just like, you know, kick the door down, shoot the bad guy, we overcome. But I love, and obviously Joe was passionate about it, where, I mean, he worked in the field forever, but, like, just the, what you can do with that story-wise, whether it be books or movies or whatever, they're, they're really, it's an untapped market. And oh, yeah. you said, like, all it takes is one person to to buy in and to take a risk on it. And I don't, I don't think it's a risk. Like, obviously, you're taking a risk, but, like, the word risk is in quotes because, like, I don't think it's a risk. I think there there is a, a demographic for it. But, you know, he was he was like, oh, it's, it's, it's young adults now. It's Game of Thrones stuff. And it's like, I think these things are cyclical. Like, you can find whatever. One person knocks down the door and then all of a sudden espionage is the new. It's, it's a tough market. And part of the problem is, like, the publishers want – they want to go with the safest bet possible. Right, obviously. But at the same time, it's really weird. It's like – I've had other people who write novels and have been published tell me like, it's weird that they hired me to write this book and, but then they do like no publicity for it. Like they, it's like, <laughs> and what the publishers are doing is they're like literally just like throwing stuff up against the wall to see what'll stick. Okay. And so there's like not really any like thought process or strategy involved in it sometimes. Yeah. Like hopefully we hit a home run with this thing, but if not like, you know, we, we well, like if it happens, it happens, you know? 
It's like like maybe this becomes like the next Tom Clancy, but whatever. Yeah, if it doesn't, whatever. It's like that. It's just kind of weird, both as a writer and as a, as a publisher. I would think it's just kind of strange to see the way they do that. Yeah, because like as a publisher, like you get stuff come across your desk, like Whoa. like oh, don't, th- don't, this is interesting, but this isn't. Like, how do you determine? Like, if you're gonna pay for it, don't you like want it to be something that you're excited about that you think right. readers will be excited about that you're gonna like put some weight behind? Um, so yeah, I have friends who are novelists that are pretty frustrated with that. But that, I mean. That was on the back end of the conversation with Joe. Joe was, uh, I, I told you, I, I, just from email, I could tell that I was going to enjoy it. <laughs> he was very well spoken. Um, obviously, he's a professor. Um, but it's just, a, it, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't know, obviously, because the CIA is, you know, covert. But it's, it's nice to get a, a peek behind the curtain, especially how he was on the forefront of, like, I mean, you, you talked about it early on. He was a meme lord before yeah, they, yeah, right. before before they before existed they, yeah. on VHS tape. A VHS lord. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I enjoyed that. But, yeah, I mean, and the fact that he's teaching social media now, it was, it's nice to see that he's, you know, cared enough about it throughout the years where, you know, a, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people can get burned out. Like, you know, you, you've done this since the 80s. And... At a certain point, you're like, you know, enough's enough. But no, he, he's enjoyed it enough to turn it into into another profession where, you know, he's teaching social media classes at Iowa. And it's like, okay. And, and he's, who better? Like, this you yeah. know, this guy lived it. He was doing it. Like He should be the guy that's on television talking about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, he, I'm, I'm sure he could if he wanted to. And like you said, anything, anything to help. Yeah. So anyone in television wants to have Joe on to talk about that stuff. Reach out to him. He'll be he'll be happy to. I'm speaking on behalf of him at this point. I feel like I can. So, um, there was um, one thing we didn't bring up in the intro. Uh, we get packages all the time. Uh, books oh, coming yeah. up. Stephen sent us his book. Stephen Elliott. He was on what uh, a couple episodes two episodes ago, ago yeah. with the Pat Tillman story, war story. Uh, so we want to thank Stephen for sending us copies of the book. Obviously, we're going to read them. Um, but you also got a package that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, this is cool. I got this uh, package from uh, Todd Apolsky, who's been on the show a couple times. And uh, he sent me this cool necklace with the, the Zen Commando uh, emblem that he had made up. It looks like a, uh, a meditating Spartan. Um, he sent me this really nice letter. I'm going to have to get back to him. But he said... Uh, He attributed a lot of the attention that his uh, Zen Commando program down in Costa Rica has gotten to this podcast. And uh, he said, so the the necklace he gave me with this little emblem on it, he said, the circle represents the circle of life, nature's way of taking and giving back to the earth. It symbolizes the universe being sacred and divine. The warrior sitting in a lotus position represents peace, harmony, and understanding. The helmet the warrior wears signifies security, strength, and protection. It's made from a coconut shell crafted by the local Costa Ricans that live near Camp Zen Commando. Um, so that's really cool. I got to go down there someday. I haven't been to Costa Rica since 2004. I, yeah, 2004. So it's been a long time. I'm sure it's kind of different down there now. Um, I would imagine. But he runs, he runs that place uh, for, like, veterans to go down there and, like, decompress. And you do PT and meditate and eat right which, and all that awesome. good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Todd's a really good guy. Um, next time he's up here, we'll have to have him on again. I feel like once you're in Costa Rica and you set up camp there, I don't think you're... He has family, like, in Connecticut, I think, so he, he's up this way once in a while. Oh. All right, then we'll have, we'll have... Obviously, Todd, if you're listening, come back on sometime. Whenever you're in Connecticut, swing by here. Yeah. Um, 
What else? Oh, oh, before, oh yeah. Alice. Of course. Come here. Alice, we... So yesterday was Alice's last day of school. So I, I took her to the toy store, see if she wanted to get a, a new toy, since she did a good job. And uh, I thought we were going to get a nice, wholesome toy. Do you want to <laughs> tell them what you actually got? Um, I don't know. It's a cold, but Daddy calls it a poopsie, but it's not called a Yeah, poopsie. no, it is. That's the name of the no, toy. No, it's not called I swear poopsie. to God, it's on the side of the toy, the can. <laughs> No, it says, um, I don't know what it says. I don't remember. Poopsie. No, it doesn't. Poop. No, it's Poopsie. Anyways, and um, I don't remember. And it, it has a, the dragon. I got a dragon, and it's um, green with a horn on it. It looks like a unicorn dragon, if I... Uh... It has big eyelashes. Yeah. What does it do? Um, <laughs> you, um, you got to put water in the little bottle... And then you squeeze it in the mouth, and then you got to shake it for a minute, and then it spits, it vomits or poop, <laughs> and, then, and then you put some sparkles and stuff in it, and then you have to, like, mix it with a spoon, and then, um, and then it turns into slime, and then you put it in a little baggie. Yeah, so this toy literally vomits pink goo up over itself. <laughs> And then it comes with these little packets of glitter that you open up and you mix into the vomit and, like, mix it up into, like, a, a, a vomit slime with glitter in it. And then you store it inside a plastic bag. And then you can play with it. And you can play with it. That's literally what this toy is. It's so sticky. Yeah. Wonderful. Daddy's so happy. I can't, I can't wait till I'm cleaning it out of our couch. Mr. and Mrs. Poopsie, whoever invented this, are laughing all the way to the bank. Oh, yeah, These they people are. are. They are. <laughs> Let's just make a toy that, you know, vomits and poops. Kids will clean it. We'll throw glitter on it, and we'll be millionaires. Take, I take Alice to this toy store. It's like, hey, you want to get some calico critters? Carte blanche. Pick you, you, something. You want, to get some, you want to get the Lego Ghostbusters car? Like, what, what do you want? No, I want a poopsie. <laughs> because I saw it at Cookie Swirl City, yeah, and exactly. I wanted it. Yeah, speaking of propaganda operations. <laughs> yeah, we, we, were talking, <laughs> we were talking about YouTube influencers. Cookie Swirl C is like some sort of terrorist. <laughs> Don't let the terrorists win yeah. by, by Murphy's Law. Yeah. Don't you love America? Don't support Cookie C. What's... Subscribe to Cookie Swirl C. All right. Get out of here. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> get off of my radio show. Subscribe to Cookie Swirl C. Away with you. No, you won't pay. If she poopsies on the mic, you're, you're in a world of trouble. <laughs> Was it one, a once a day thing? I don't, I don't well, know. It's one and done. Thank God for that. Okay. <laughs> That went off the rails quick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so next episode, one of our writers, Joe LaFave, coming Great on. last name. LaFave just said it. He could be a fan LaFave. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Like McLovin? It's like a really sexy hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you're my LaFave. Uh Looking forward to having Joe on, and then um, and then my uh, I believe my old buddy is going to be coming on the show. I'm pretty sure he's going to make it in. I'll I'll, I'll reconfirm with him. But um, he's another guy who's deeply involved. A veteran I know I've known for a long time. He's deeply involved in um, use of uh, psychedelics to treat PTSD and all that bad stuff. Um, so he hit me up the other day and said he'd, he'd love to come on the show and talk about it. After hearing uh, Jeff talk about it, Jeff Nichols? Yeah, yeah. 
And so he's like, he, this guy I know is involved in like trying to get involved in like the policy side and influence oh, yeah? and legislation and stuff. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause, uh, I, you know, I tell my friends like, you're like, Oh, who'd you have on? Like, and, and I'll tell and I was telling him about Jeff and how he, they were like, he was like, he went down to Mexico and used psychedelics to, to help with his PTSD. And everybody was like, wait, what? I was like, yeah, they just, you know, it was like doctors gave him, you know, DMT and psilocybin mushrooms. And they were like, okay, uh, definitely need to learn more about that. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> like that's, that's fascinating, the fact that, I mean, we, we talk about it a bunch, but like uh, taking, well, what, what did your buddy call him? Uh, plant, plant, plant medicine. Plant medicine. <laughs> like, first off, great name. Uh, secondly, the fact that it, if, if there are alternatives like that that are helping, that's incredible. Yeah. Like, mushrooms from the earth. It, it, well, he, he was telling me, he's like, this thing, like using psychedelics, like it's difficult to monetize, but you have to be careful talking to policymakers about it because like they want to make money off it. Oh, of course. And they want tax revenue. Um, and he, he was saying this, like if this takes off, like it's not only is it going to wipe out the pharmaceutical industry, but it's also going to like, like the Betty Ford clinics and all that, although like rehab, like all that's gone too. Now, I mean, this is a little conspiracy theorist, but like they, uh, is it really going to wipe them out? Like, I feel like big government, you know, has, has a hand, like they've got to be aware that this is a capability. So maybe like they can, you know what I mean? Um, what, what am I thinking of? Like, you know how there's rumors that they're like, that there's a, a cure for AIDS and they just won't release it. Cause well, I mean, in the past, it's true that DuPont chemicals was behind getting, uh, marijuana made illegal. They, they funded that movie reefer madness because they, their, their synthetic products could not compete with hemp. There you go. So that was the whole thing. Like they, they propagandized the public, scared the hell out of everyone about, about reefer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He'll die from smoking reefer. Um, but yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to hear because the same thing, you know what else? Um, um, Absinthe was also made illegal for the same reason because the bourbon industry couldn't compete with absinthe at the time. I don't think any alcohol can compete with it. It was very, absinthe was very popular like around the turn of the century, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it was like the bourbon companies and whiskey companies. <laughs> we got to get ahead of this. Had absinthe made illegal, yeah. Oh, well. Uh, looking forward to having Joseph on and then hopefully your buddy can, because I, this stuff fascinates me. Like, I'm not a, a, a I am not a drug user by any means, but like to to hear how that this helps from it. I mean, to go back to like the reefer revolution, how you know marijuana had such this this stigma of like you know you lazy pothead like you eat Cheetos and all this, <laughs> and now it's like it's helping. Like athletes are pushing for it for you know to relieve like joint pains and stuff like that, and it's like oh maybe maybe dr- I mean drugs are still bad. Don't get me wrong, but like. Well, maybe we're getting a little bit more enlightened about, yeah. you know, how we're going to use them. Um, because, I mean, pharmaceutical drugs are not great for you either. Right. Like, you know, so it, in, in some cases, I mean, is smoking marijuana better for you than using opioids? It seems like it. Probably. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not going to kill you. Like, who, what was it I read somewhere that, like, to, from, to OD on marijuana, you have to, like, smoke your weight in marijuana, basically? Well, that's so it's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. That's a lot of marijuana. Um, that wraps it up. I feel like, right. That's it, man. Um, Uh, we'll be back 
on Tuesday. Tuesday with Joseph. Alice is hungry, so we gotta go. Yeah. You got you to feed. You got to feed her, otherwise she she poopsie all over. Release you. the crack. We don't. We don't want to deal with that. Um, before we go, I want to let you guys know. Be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. All tier crates are available at CrateClub.us. And right now, we are running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all SoftRep Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long this promotion will last. So get on it right now. That's CrateClub.us. The coupon code is SoftRep for 20% off your subscription for all crates. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder to you, the listener, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at the News Rep, you got to get on board. There's expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard. Guys like Jack Murphy, there's Stavros, uh, plenty of other guest writers pop in time to time. When you sign up for the news rep, you get unlimited access on any device, unlimited access to the app. You get to join the War Room community. You get invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. There's a trial offer going up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, if you're not aware, we have our own SoftRep radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage is softrepradio.com, where you can see our full archive of shows. As always, keep up with us on social media at SoftRep Radio as well. That concludes episode 469. We want to thank Joe for coming on. Uh, great conversation. Looking forward to having another Joe on Tuesday. So back-to-back Joes. That wraps it up. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review. Uh, Enjoy. Hope you guys guys enjoy the episode. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.